four, three, two. Dante Cola Promotion presents the Tommy and Adam Hard to Name Podcast, starring Ed Gran Tommy Martinez and Mr. Adam Tate, executive producer Shay Big Bubba Martinez. And now, here's the greatest podcast, according to them, the Tommy and Adam Hard to Name Podcast. <laughs> Excellent. I like it. <laughs> Welcome. And welcome to the Timing Adam Hard to Name Podcast, Season 2, Episode Number 34. I'm Tommy Martinez in the driver's seat for this podcast, also in for my rock and roll brother and the humblest guy that I know on planet Earth, Mr. Adam Tate, who is still not in. Uh, Hopefully he will come in and rescue what is left of this podcast. If you didn't catch last episode, episode number 33, it's online and streaming. You can be the judge. But for right now, hopefully it uh, entertained you as much as uh, I'm going to attempt to entertain you with our podcast today. So wherever you may be, be it at your home doing something, driving your car, on some kind of flight somewhere, maybe you're in the North Pole. I have no idea where you're at. Sit back to enjoy the idiotic yet smashing the Tommy and Adam Hard Today podcast. And before we go into uh, the regular uh, podcast format, I'm going to go ahead and say that this week in the news, uh, you had uh, Syria and Iraq were bombed by Mr. President Joe Biden. That's pretty awesome. You know, and, and not that, you know, war is awesome or anything like that, but I'm just saying you got to sometimes respect. And, you know, maybe they didn't think that Joe had it in him, but evidently he did. To the dismay, I'm sure, of the uh, uh, coexist crowd, I'm sure they were all in uproar. Oh, I voted for Joe Biden. Now he's attacking. Oh, no. You know who they are. The ones that think we should all coexist and all eat marshmallows and ride on top of unicorns. Like, that's realistic. Good principle, however. By the way, I'm also positive the conservative crowd and their media sources found some kind of fault with what the president did. But, you know, that's, you know, that's just expected. That's how those cats do it. You know, the liberals fight with the conservatives. The conservatives fight with the liberals. It's just the way it is. Anyway, we had some other stuff going on this week, but we're not going to cover that because we have a lot to cover today on the podcast. So shall we just go for it? With Morris Day and the Time and their hit, Chocolate. Get funky. That's how we start out this podcast today. Morris Day and the Time. Well known from the movie Purple Rain. Mega Prince hit. This song was actually written by Prince. That's why it sounds a lot like Prince. Uh, the Minnesota sound. Very, very funky. Anyway, thank you so much. 
And uh, the reason we picked the song that had chocolate in it is because today is July the 3rd of 2021. And it is National Chocolate Wafer Day. Because if you love chocolate, National Chocolate Wafer Day on July the 3rd today allows you to indulge in a delicately sweet cookie with a great history. It's also very versatile. You could have one for breakfast. You could have one at lunch. You could have one for dinner. Or you could have one with all three meals. Also called sugar wafer. These delicate snacks melt in your mouth. Made since the mid-1800s in the United States, makers called the cookies many names. Wafer, cookie, sugar wafer, sugar biscuits, fairy wafers. While many enjoyed them as snacks, they also became favorite after-dinner treats or served during teas. Oh, how fine. That's very classy. You know, have a little tea with a, with a wafer. Uh, maybe it's a fairy wafer. I have no idea what, what kind of wafer you would have with tea. But anyway, lightly flavored and layered with the creamy feeling, the thin cookies delight folks of all ages. I'm going to say that um, I enjoy uh, sugar wafers. I enjoy chocolate uh, wafers. I do. And uh, also, they, they, they could also be vanilla. They could be strawberry. But I, I really enjoy the chocolate ones. There's a, a cookie in, in Puerto Rico. I don't, I don't know if it's sold here in, uh, in the States. But it's I think it was made by Mr. Domisco. I'm going to have to look this up real quick. But... It's, it was called Panky, but no, no, not Hanky Panky. Now, come on now. <laughs> Do you have a dirty man? <laughs> Don't think that immediately. You know, it, just, it was just called Panky, just like that P-A-N-K-Y. Anyway, it was a chocolate wafer. It was really, really good. And they used to sell them little packs, you know, not, you know, just regular size cookie. I love those things. They were uh, one of my favorites, you know. And as time goes, like with everything else with these uh with these products, they, they continue to get smaller and the price gets bigger. But yeah, but that's probably one of my favorite uh, chocolate wafers. It says here, uh, this I think this is kind of interesting. Uh, numerous companies produced them in North America. Regardless of the company, each one considered uh, the production of these wafers an art form. Uh, they took pride in everything from their ingredients to the employees and the recipe to the packaging. Over time, companies merged. And by the 1930, the number of production companies dwindled. Also, uh, there's a, there's a, I wish I could remember that one. I, I, and I buy these every once in a while. But there's German wafers as well that are chocolate wafers. And they look like a little, uh, like a little roller. And it's no, no bigger than a baby, about three inches each. It's pretty good. Anyway, today they remain an American favorite with the waffle surface patterns and thin layers. These cookies make an excellent addition to ice cream. They do. They do. Absolutely. Uh, use them as an ingredient in cakes and cheesecakes. Uh, yeah, because you could crumple them up uh, and throw them into the batter. Wow. I didn't even think about that. If you prefer pie, crush wafers, make a delicious chocolate crust. Mm. Going to have to think about that the next time I do a chocolate uh, cheesecake. Uh, uh, no matter where or how you're eating your wafers, these tasty treats are positively worth celebrating. And again, National Day here puts this big exclamation mark on there. And I want to tell you something. I, I think so. I think this is a really uh, good National Day where you could sit back, enjoy yourself a chocolate wafer. I, I mean, it's not a bad idea at all. Now, the question is, how do you celebrate uh, National Chocolate Wafer Day? Well, while you're picking out a few to celebrate, be sure to share it with a friend. 
you know, maybe play a game, a board game of some sort or drink some coffee with it or whatever. But always remember <laughs> to take your picture, you know, that famous selfie, hashtag it chocolate wafer day and encourage others to join uh, in the fun that is eating that delicious treat. I, I That's good. I think I'm going to have a few today. Anyway, uh, it's also Eat Your Beans Day, of course. <laughs> that way you can come up with some really good uh, ideas uh, to celebrate the National Eat Your Beans Day. With with some of these national days, <laughs> you could get really, really crazy and uh, hashtag away. And I, I'd share a few uh, of those uh, eat your beans day on social media for sure with, with that hashtag. <laughs> Today in history. Brought to you by History.com And this is some Iron Maiden For the greater good of God July the 3rd, 1990 A stampede of religious pilgrims in a pedestrian tunnel in Mecca left more than 1,400 people dead. At the time, this was the most deadly of a series of incidents over 20 years affecting Muslims making that hollow trip to Mecca in Saudi Arabia. And if you have no idea what I'm talking about, if you've seen the movie uh, Malcolm X, you'll see when uh, that scene where he travels to Saudi Arabia to Mecca. This is where all the, the faithful of the... Uh, of the Islamic religion or the whole conglomerate. They're known as the Ummah. And the reason I know these kind of things is because I, I took a humanities class uh, when I was in college, and, and one of the classes that I took was an actual class on Islam because it's, because it's important to know, you know uh, things like this. I think we were at war with uh, Middle Easterners that subscribed to that faith, and I figured, hey, let me learn something <laughs> about these folks. Uh, because that is their driving force anyway, so much that they uh, they do this pilgrimage, as I, did I say, as one of the five pillars of their religion, and one is this Hajj, or this pilgrimage to, uh, to Mecca in Saudi Arabia. More than two million people uh, every single year make this, uh, this journey to Saudi Arabia, and this was not the first time that any kind of tragedy uh, had been absent of these... Uh, uh, type of rituals back in uh, says here back in 1987 a confrontation between Iranians and Saudis during an anti-American demonstration resulted in 400 deaths so you know that, that that's what they get you know they should be out there uh, you know celebrating uh, their uh, their religion along amongst themselves and here they are protesting and doing some other nonsense but it's not only pro uh, protest and and whatnot there's also uh, there was another incident uh near the valley of the birthplace of muhammad there's this gigantic pillar where they throw stones at i think this pillar represents the devil and uh some people were killed there i don't know over 200 people i think were, were killed in that one 
and just so uh, just so you'll understand, Islam does not mean peace. Islam means to submit. That is the literal translation of what Islam means. And Muslims are the submitted. So yeah, so their faith. Uh, there's a requirement, if they can, to make this Hajj. Unfortunately, back in 1990, the stampede occurred, and uh, there are some other incidents that go along with this. It just goes to show you what faith can do. And I'm going to stay away from uh, from going too deep on anything that's religious, because last time, I believe, uh, Adam fell asleep uh, during one of my rants on religion. And we also had that one listener send us that email thinking that you know I had said something or misinterpreted uh, what I said about, at least by what I thought about religion in general. But yeah, this is an uh, 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 um, unfortunate incident tied to many other things that go along with this uh, religion. But this, this religion itself has some very beautiful things. As I said, I had studied it, uh, and the Quran is, is, is full of some lovely verses and some life, morality, spirituality, lessons, and proverbs that you could apply to your daily life. It doesn't matter if you are a subscriber to that religion or a believer in that particular religion. I'm not trying to be all uh, religious and inclusive here or for those people who are not defined. but uh, And definitely I'm not trying to be a coexist without a doubt because that would be too naive of me to even believe that one. But uh, of the many beautiful things that have come out of that has been uh, something that you may or may not know. The Led Zeppelin song, Thank You, has a uh, verse from the Quran or some kind of a version of Matter of fact, I'm going to look it up real quick. As always, I'm not prepared for all this stuff, so let me look this up really quick. It's Zeppelin. Uh, let me see real quick. Uh, thank you, Led Zeppelin. Mm-hmm. See, well, this is the kind of shit that happens uh, when you make this stuff on the fly. Here we go. Let me see. There it is right there, yeah. This is a very cool factoid uh, where I could tie it in since this is a rock and roll podcast, kind of, and it's Zeppelin with Thank You. Now, check it out. It's the the, the one that I tied in the Quran with, uh, with Zeppelin is this first verse coming up right here. Very, very cool. If the sun refused to shine Still be loving you when mountains crumble to the sea, there will still be you and me. Mm. Is that awesome or what? I'm talking about Zeppelin and tying in. You know, you know, I think I had said this before. When you could take this and write it onto like a card and give it to, you know, to your your girlfriend, to your wife, whoever you have. If you have both, that's, you know, that's on you. But that's a kind of lyrical madness that is a definite panty dropper for sure. You know, and they will know, you know, where you got it from. You, you, you just quoted the Koran. Just don't tell them that, you know. As I've said before, art inspires art. So Zeppelin. Went ahead and got their idea, so go ahead and get your own idea. By the way, this is not Led Zeppelin 101 segment. At least not yet. Hey, I can't find nothing on the radio. Uh, you'll turn to that station. Today in sports history brought to you by history.com and on this day.com slash sports. The world is collapsing. 
is R.E.M., the radio song, or radio song. How important is the radio? Uh, today, I still say it's super important. I listen to the radio quite a bit uh, because, uh, you know, it keeps me current. Uh, you're driving, you're doing whatever it is. You don't have time to watch TV. You know, as you're busy as I am, you know, I'm retired, so <laughs> I got uh, all kinds of time, but I still listen to the radio. July the 3rd, 1931. Yeah, there was radio back then. Absolutely. German boxer Max Schimmling here says, Beat American Young uh, young Stribling by technical knockout in 15 rounds in Cleveland, Ohio, in his first title defense. Now, you have to say to yourself, uh, what the hell does this have to do with the radio? Well, I'm going to let you know, of course. Uh, this was the first major fight to be broadcasted live on national radio. So you have to transport yourself back in time close to almost 90 years ago and say, what's going on? You know, what was what was the technology that was available? And on top of that, remember, boxing, like many sports events, involves gambling. So that means, you know, people will know right there on the spot as they listen to the fight, blow by blow and the rest. By the end of it, they will know if they won money or they lost money. Uh, I'm sure there's uh, some other uh, factors in there, uh, advertising, publicity, things of that nature. But, you know, it just goes to show you we take for granted what we have nowadays. Today we just go on to our cell phones or our computers or whatever it may be, and we know right on, you know, real time on the spot what's going on. Back then that didn't exist. Their real time was listening to these events on the radio, which later turned into being on the TV and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, to where we are today. So it gives you a little uh, backstory to some uh, humbling beginnings of how all this came about. Because 24-hour sports broadcasting, like we have it today, readily available at our fingertips, just didn't always exist. When I read those things, it just makes me think we we live such a uh, we live in such a great time. It's it, it truly is a, a wonderful time in history. Today, it's today, it's today, it's today. Today in rock history. Brought to you by History.com, TodayInMusic.com, SongFacts.com slash History. And this is City Stardust and the Spiders from Mars. Now Ziggy played guitar, jamming good with Webb and Gilly and the Spiders from Mars. They played it Ziggy Stardust, a.k.a. Mr. David Bowie. And today in 1974 at the Hammersmith Odin in London, David Bowie appeared as Ziggy Stardust for the very last time, explaining not only is this the last show of the tour, but it's the last show that we'll ever do. Wow. And you, you, again, as I was saying previously, when you transport yourself into history, you would understand the magnitude and uh, the uh, fame that Ziggy Stardust had achieved. And he was a fictional character. And uh, David Bowie is one of those artists that through time proved to be uh, one of these very evolving uh, artists. So he went to all this 
uh, all these uh, phases, and Ziggy Stardust was one of them. And and, and and again, it's 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 a matter of taste. Uh, it's a matter of what you like. If you like the artsy shows, then you know this was definitely your thing. Especially at a time in history where you had all these people taking all these psychedelics and whatnot. And uh, uh, you know, according to what I've read and seen on some uh, bits and histories and, and biopics on on David Bowie, it had to be a phenomenal time to go and see one of these shows. Many take this to mean that Bowie was retiring from music altogether, though Bowie just meant he was retiring as Stardust, as this character. This show is later made into a movie, which uh, if you haven't seen it, you have to check it out. And it's just it's called just that Ziggy Stardust and the Spiders from Mars. After 182 Ziggy Stardust concert performances, so he had done 182, and uh, only his guitarist, uh, Mick Ronson, knew about this whole thing, which came to a complete shock, not only to the audience, but to the rest of the band. In typical Bowie dramatical fashion, that's how he went out as Ziggy Stardust. By the way, not a, uh, a frequent presence in uh, Mr. Adam Tate's playlist either. This is Rush, off of their record, Fly By Night, and their song, Anthem. Sometimes I'll just let that play for a little while and let it sink in. Oh, yes. I need that this early in the morning. 1974, June the 29th, 1974. Mr. Neil Peart replaced John Rutsey as the drummer for one of our favorite bands of all time, Rush. Rutley played on the band's first album, but Peart played on the next 18 joining Geedy Lee and Alex Lifeson in one of the most venerable and productive partnerships in rock history. And right now, I just want to say to them, we at the Tommy and Adam Hard to Name podcast, available on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, App, RSS Podcasts, CastBox, and Himalaya, we thank you from the bottom of our hearts. Anthem, the song you just finished listening to right now, was off of Fly By Night, and uh, that was covered in a previous episode of our podcast uh, on Significant Album. So if you want to get a little background, a little bit of more Rush history, just go back to that particular episode, and you'll be able to know how uh, how uh, Neil Peart transitioned into this group that we love so much. Also, on uh, some more Rush-related history for this week, back in 2004, uh, June the 29th, 2004, Rush released their 18th studio album, Feedback. Had uh, eight, nine covers of, I mean, yeah, something like that, of the uh, songs that had influenced all three members uh, during their earlier years. And to cap it off, this week on July the 1st in 2015, for the very first time ever, Rush made the cover of Rolling Stone magazine. And if you're a Rush fan, 
and you've been around that camp for a while, you probably know nobody gave a shit about that because the guys in Rush probably didn't give a shit either. But they did give a shit about this group coming up because they opened for them back in the 70s. One, two, three, four. This weekend. Oh, yeah. Kiss. You know what's coming. And it's Kiss with Christine. 16. Sixteen, sixteen, off a of love gun because on June the thirtieth, nineteen seventy-seven, this week in history, kisses band members put their blood, sweat, and tears, or at least uh, a little blood, into their comic book. Yes, this is the infamous incident that they actually uh, put some uh, blood into the red ink that would be used on this comic book that was published by uh, Marvel Comics back in 1977. It's actually right off the heels of the release of Love Gun. Uh, it, it kind of all coming together, you know, Love Gun, great album. Kiss is still ruling the world. Here they are, they're going to go devil more into uh, their marketing and their merchandising, and they're going to jump onto the Marvel brand and, and come up with their own comic book. It's just crazy. Uh, real quick on Christine 16, uh, since I have uh, some, some information floating in my brain, uh, Eddie Van Halen and Alex Van Halen actually played on the demo for this song. It's a Gene Simmons song, you know, if you haven't uh, realized that by now. As well as uh, another song, I think it was Girls Got Love or Love for Sale. The lyrics uh, are uh, are the kind of lyrics that are taboo lyrics where an older dude is in love with this younger girl. So, yeah, wrong answer, especially today. That's just the wrong answer. Another quick note on Christine 16, uh, Tone Loke, the rapper Tone Loke, uh, actually sampled, I want to say, uh, Funky Cold Medina was the tune that was propelled and helped by, yes, a Kiss song. In this instance, in Kiss history, the Kiss appearance in the Marvel comic book was not their first. They had appeared previously in issues, it says here, issues 12 and 13 of Howard the Duck earlier in 1977. I, I didn't know that. But in this case, this was their first appearance as actual heroes within that kind of comic book storyline formula. The recording volume keeps going up on me. I'm sorry. But yeah, but it says here Gene Simmons. Yep. Give me one second here while I try to adjust this uh, this freaking volume thing. Give me, give me one second here. Okay, good. Good. Yes. One, two, one, two. All right. Where was I? Okay. Gene Simmons, Paul Stanley, Ace Fraley, and Peter Chris took on their alter egos as the demon, the star child, the spaceman, and the catman. And uh, this storyline that pitted them up against uh, Dr. Doom, which, you know, Dr. Doom being a, a primary evil character from the Fantastic Four world. If you've seen the movie, actually, as a matter of fact, uh, in my humble opinion, if Kiss would have uh, battled Dr. Doom in the first attempt of them trying to do these Fantastic Four movies, I think that would have been a, a better movie. Than, than what we saw. Uh, anyway, I, I thought real quick. I, 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 I have a, I have a book around here. Give me a second. Give me a second. 
I do is behind it was behind my little kiss stage that I have there, my mini kiss stage out here in Datakoa Promotion Studios One. It is a book that a friend of mine, Mike Cole, uh, from up there from Leavenworth, Kansas, it was he gifted this to me when when I had retired from the army. It is it's it's an entire uh, it's it's a hard covered book and it is let me read here it has all the uh, all the comics published up to I forgot to what year but anyway that one comic book that there that is being mentioned here the the here it is right here yes sir here it is forty pages of full color comics plus never before published photos and features printed in the real blood of kiss so yeah I I have a copy of it I don't have that actual comic. It's it is called Kiss Compendium, I believe, and obviously since it's Kiss, they take the C off and they replace it with a K. So Compendium, uh, I hope I pronounced that right here. Let me uh here let me ask a weird and freaky computer voice guy uh, if I pronounced that right. Compendium. There you go, right there. I did get it right. Hit me. Com- Compendium. Compendium. Yeah, Kiss Compendium. I I I do have a copy of that here. Hmm. Moving on with the podcast, since I got distracted, it was published in a larger magazine format rather than the regular comic book size uh, format. Kiss in their usual inimitable fashion, they seized the marketing opportunity afforded uh, by uh, the publishing of these comics to arrange for veils of their own blood to be mixed into the ink that was going to be used. And I, I don't know if I, saw, I said that. Or not. I've gotten so wrapped up here in this in this whole thing. I was kind of you know in the zone with it, but I, putting my hands on this uh, on this book kind of you know brought it all back. The blood was drawn during a concert at New York's Nassau Coliseum in February 21 of 1977. It was then mixed in with the production ink in the presence of a public notary at the Borden Ink Plant in Depot, New York, uh, on May the 26th. Marvel Comics Super Special Number 1 becomes Marvel's biggest-selling comic, knocking off the top Todd McFarlane's Spider-Man, which had been number one. Wow, this is a lot of history on this. The cool thing, I got to use this coffee table book in this podcast. And to cap this off uh, and close it out, uh, this title, this comic title, the the super special, it, it ran for 41 issues, it says here. So it wasn't just, you know, to clear this up, it's just it wasn't a Kiss comic per se with its own title. It was a series titled The Super Special, and uh, Kiss just so happens to be the first one that they used. And throughout these years from 77 to 1985, it covered subjects as diverse as the Beatles, Star Trek, uh, Indiana Jones, and even Santa Claus. I, I didn't read any of those. Maybe Santa Claus battled Thanos. Maybe the Beatles battled uh, the Brotherhood of Evil Mutants. Or I don't know. Just great ideas, just throwing that out there. Uh, I think the best part of this entire uh, history piece has been learning how Kiss came to be within uh, this world within this comic book world not only that how they were able to market it how they were able to keep their merchandising going you know love or hate kiss it, it truly they truly are the masters of uh, self-promotion it's, it's, i could have gone all podcast uh just on this subject alone i have enough material to, to do that but for right now we're gonna go with some humble pie with mr peter frantham and I don't need no doctor.
this is definitely my song. Uh, <laughs> and, th- and I say this a lot, but I love this song. It's absolutely awesome. I heard the Wasp cover uh, a couple back uh, back in the 80s, and uh, I just fell that I said, you know, these guys did a great job uh, covering Humble Pie's I Don't Need No Doctor. You all know that that uh, Peter Frampton was a member of Humble Pie. So on uh, June the 29th, 1978, Peter Frampton was in a very bad car accident in the Bahamas. So <laughs> it's what's going on in the Bahamas. First, uh, I think was a Jimmy Buffett. His plane was shot at as it took off because the authorities there in the Bahamas had confused Jimmy Buffett's plane with a smuggler's plane. And I, I think that's the episode where we mentioned that Bono was also in that plane, and he needed a change of underwear after it had been. Uh, <laughs> and we totally made that up. I just want to make sure that that we put that out there again and clear that up. But in this case, it was Peter Frampton. He had a very nasty accident down there in the Bahamas. Here's a place where you vacation, you have a great time, and uh, here's a here's a young lad at the time, Peter Frampton, and enjoying all the success. Frampton comes alive. We've covered that here as well. And then Frantham has this horrible accident down there in the Bahamas where he, he suffers an injury to his arm and, and also he has some other internal injuries. But the good news is he recovered uh, fairly quickly uh, from that accident. He was able to go and continue on this incredible career that he has had as a musician. And, and it has to be a terrible feeling that you are a guitarist and your arm is not working. You know, it's... It has to be, you know, extremely depressing. But another good news is that Frantham also missed the premiere of that horrible movie, Sgt. Pepper's Lonely Heart Club Band, uh, <laughs> that he starred in. We also covered here in this podcast. Wow, I just realized that this particular uh, piece in rock and roll history flashed me back to a couple of other pieces of history that we have covered here already here in the Tommy and Adam Hard to Name podcast. So we're kind of like meshing it together. We're doing, I don't know, we're coming together some way, somehow. So I, I think that was a very unexpectedly cool. Settle down, class. It's this week's rockin' higher education lesson on Led Zeppelin 101 with Professor Adam Lee. No way around it. You knew it was coming. This is Les Zeppelin and their hit Black Dog. The live versions always kick my nuts. Led Zeppelin live, Black Dog. Woo, let me calm down and sit down as well. Led Zeppelin, 1980, June the 27th, 1980. Three songs into Led Zeppelin's concert in Nuremberg, drummer John Bonham collapsed while beating out a rhythm to this song we just heard right now, Black Dog, and is rushed to a hospital, abruptly ending the show that evening. Wow, we all know how John Bonham ended. 
these are what people would call today signs, the telltale of that something is going on. There's something underlying here that's really underlining here that's really, uh, you know, fucking with this guy. You know, here's a young man, a strong young man, as John Bonham was in his prime, and he's drinking himself to death. And in this case, he collapses in, uh, you know, in such a, an incredibly great song, which is Black Dog. And here comes Robert Plant. He jokingly says that he must have eaten too many bananas when, in fact, you know, it had been alcohol that had caused that evening's uh, show to end that way. That is not the best thing, you know, to see your thunder god, to see your, your rock and roll hero flat drunk on his face. And, and John Bonham was, and, and still is, uh, a drummer that is cited by many rock greats and, and you know, just everyday drummers. You know, they, they studied his style and some would even call his drumming legendary. You know, especially when people, people die and, you know, they, they blow up things more than, than, than what they need to. It turns into, you know, myth or legend. But yeah, here, here it just, it's just a terrible piece of, of rock history. You know, to tangibly see the demise of, of, of the greatness that was Led Zeppelin. And they could have carried on without him, but they didn't. Keep in mind, this may or may not be on the test. It all depends uh, what the professor says when he comes back. This is Goldie Hammer. Motorhead 1981, June the 27th, 1981, Motorhead scored their only UK number one album with no sleep till Hammersmith. And that would be Hammersmith Odin, the actual the same venue that we had spoken about previously with the uh, with uh, Ziggy Stardust and the Spiders from Mars, where they had ended their career. So the live album was recorded at Leeds and Newcastle show during their short, sharp pain in the neck tour. Back in 1981, the name of the tour was a reference to an injury sustained by Phil Taylor when he dropped on his head during some after-show horseplay. <laughs> uh, despite of the title of the album, the London venue, the Hammersmith Odin, was not played on the tour. Hmm. I always thought they, they had played or they had recorded that record in uh, that venue. Oh, it's always the things that you learn. On this podcast, it was actually named. The album was named after it, anyway. Oh, the time had a hard to name podcast, and everyone knows who this is. This is Bon Jovi from 1983 and Runaway. On the street where you live, girls talk about the social lives. The main Olympic players to complain, so to see when they rise. Bon Jovi, also a uh, a group that doesn't make a lot of appearances, I think, on Adam's playlist. Uh, bon Jovi, 1983, July the 1st, uh, 1983, a New Jersey-based quintet calling themselves Bon Jovi, signed to Phonograms Mercury Records. Here's a quick and interesting fact. Before signing, they had actually considered naming their group, this group, Johnny Electric. I don't think a Johnny Electric. Well, you never know. I mean, it's right now we just know him as Bon Jovi. But Johnny Electric, mm, 
Sounds like a circus act or something. Maybe something that'll show up on uh, that Americans Got Talent something. You know, whatever. But yeah, uh, real quick, it says here uh, the group has since sold over 130 million records worldwide and has performed over 2,600 concerts in over 50 countries to over 34 million fans worldwide. I would say that Bon Jovi has, and I think this is an understatement, Bon Jovi has a huge fan base. Also, that validates the line on their Wanted Dead or Alive song. As I've told my buddy Adam a thousand times when I was out there in Bremen, Oklahoma, and I looked upon the million faces from the stage side by side with Mr. Gene Simmons. Warning, warning, bullshit alert. <laughs> okay, okay, okay. It wasn't a million people. It was it was uh, really about maybe half a million people. And if you don't believe me, you go on my Facebook and check it out for yourself. And this is Tesla Signs. And Signs says long haired, bigger people need not apply. Oh. So I took my hair under my hand and I waited to ask you why. He said, You look like a man outstanding your bed. Tesla's version of the five man electrical band. Uh, original song signs and they actually covered that for uh, their their album uh, five man acoustical jam uh, recorded uh, somewhere in pennsylvania i believe philadelphia anyway it was their cover and it became a surprise hit which uh catalyzes which impulses the acoustic rock trend if you were around in the 90s you would remember mtv's unplugged and which was the regular series on mtv that featured these bands that would come in and play their instruments unplugged. They wouldn't have any electrical instruments. And uh, it was uh, fantastic. All kinds of artists did that. Uh, Eric Clapton, Kiss, uh, Nirvana, Alice in Chains, LL Cool J. Uh, so, yeah, so they all, not only did they go into the rock, they went to some other uh, genres. The Latino version or MTV or MTV Latin, I can't remember what that one was called. They had Shakira on there. They had uh, Mana was also uh, on that series anyway. But, but you know, just to give you some origins, the inspiration to a lot of this was taken out of Tesla's uh, record here, uh, Five Man Acoustical Jam, and this video that they played over and over again for Signs. I, I, this is probably one of Tesla's uh, better-known songs, even though Tesla is an awesome group. I've seen them as well, and uh, I believe they're touring right now, so that'd be... Uh, a great post-COVID show to catch if you get the opportunity. Tesla signs. And we're going to move on to the uh, hip-hop version, I guess, of the, uh, the podcast. And this is some Ice Cube off of his record, The Predator. And it was a good day. didn't have to pull out his AK because it was a good day. That's a quote from Mr. Ice Cube. Back in 1991, July the 2nd, 1991, in his first acting role, Ice Cube starred alongside Cuba Gooding Jr. 
in the acclaimed drama Boys in the Hood. We're in the 90s now. Let me see. Let me check. Yeah, let me go back. Oh, yeah, yeah, we are. Anyway, writer-director John Singleton wrote the role of a troubled gangster, Doughboy, specifically for the ex-NWA rapper. And this is kind of where uh, this is. he is launched upon the big screen and starts his career as an actor. Aerosmith and living on the edge. Live. What a kick-ass song. Whatever we play here on uh, the Time and Adam Hart to Name podcast, available on Spotify, uh, Apple Podcast app, and the rest of your favorite DSPs. Whenever it's Aerosmith, woo, it's just kick ass. Listen to this. That's right. Anyway, back in 1994, June the 27th, 1994, Aerosmith became the first major band to let fans download a full new track free. Zero dinero, zero moolah. Free from the internet. The first, the first. I did not know that. I was reading through this and I said, wow. You know, you hear like U2 and Prince had his own uh, kind of streaming channel, etc., etc. But I did not know Aerosmith uh, were the pioneers of the free internet download of music. That's an excellent piece of rock and roll history. Anything that's free, I'm all for it. You know, that's just because I'm an absolute cheapie. <laughs> so free is always a uh, number one on my list. Free tickets, you know, things like that. Uh, <laughs> Woo. Aerosmith excites me. Free excites me. But you know, these guys right here always, when they come on the Time and Adam Hart to Name podcast, available on Spotify and Apple Podcast apps. Yes, the mighty Metallica. When they come on, I also become excited because this is their hit, King Nothing, off of their record, Low. Oh. This is just mind-blowing rock and roll. I always say that if uh, if I had any kind of entrance music, it would probably be uh, King Nothing. Like if I was a wrestler, I would go in to the ring with King Nothing playing because it's, it just revs you up. It starts off kind of like just a guitar and then it pumps into the bass and then the drums kick in. Oh. That's the kind of music you need to make an entrance, and Metallica will be providing that entrance, yeah. In 1996, June the 27th, 1996, Metallica. Yeah, Metallica, they are set to headline the sixth 
edition of Lollapalooza as it launched at Longview Lake in Kansas City, Missouri. That's just a couple of hours north of here. Defying tradition as a showcase for underground acts. The headliner is Metallica for the Lollapalooza show. Uh, it's tour, carnival, whatever you want to call it. With Soundgarden also on the bill. So that must have been a great Lollapalooza. I saw Lollapalooza later. I saw the ones after this one because I came back to the States, I want to say 1997. And the uh, Lala show that I saw was after that. So still, it must have been a hell of an experience to see uh, these two bands on the same bill, Metallica and Soundgarden. Lollapalooza itself, if you've been to one, you know exactly what I'm referring to. So I, I hope that uh, this made at least a few of you revive your membrane and say, wow, I was out there and saw that super uh, concert. You know who this is? This is Jennifer Lopez. Let's get loud. Since we've had uh, Jenny from the block played on this show, and in honor of her always popping up, let's just go ahead and render the appropriate tribute to the diva of our podcast. Ooh, did she get four boings? Let me hear that again. She got four boings. That's just, oh, wow. That's a first. Oh, yeah, Jenny, you can do it today. In uh, what it says here in 1999, Jennifer released or unleashed herself in the musical world with her debut album, On the Six. Enough of that as we move on to some more rock and roll. And this right here is some Pearl Jam off of their album, Riot Act, Love Boats, Captain. Is this just another day? This Not something that uh, really lightens the mood because it really isn't a song meant to do that. In uh, June the 30th of 2000, during a Pearl Jam concert at Denmark's Roskid Festival. I hope I got that right. And if I didn't, oh well. Nine people, nine people were crushed to death as the crowd rushes the stage. That mm. usually seems to happen quite a bit. Several people fall and can't get up. In addition, crowd surfers are falling into the open areas and being trampled. Wow. Pearl Jam stops the show and asks people to back up, but it's just too late. Investigations did conclude that the events were an accident, thank God, and many European venues at from that point on banned crowd surfing. Ah, oh, that seems to be always fun, especially for the spectators, especially like uh, people watchers like Adam and me. We, we enjoy that quite a bit. The Pearl Jam song, the one we just uh, heard a little bit of right now, a love boat captain, refers to the events in the line that says, Lost nine friends will never know two years ago today. Hmm. Wow. You're going to a show, uh, live shows. You know, thank God that COVID is over and you're able to go out again and enjoy live shows. And the intent is to go out there and have a good time. And it's unfortunate when tragic events like this happen. I, a long time ago, I was at a Nazi show in Fayetteville, North Carolina. And, and it, 
the opener was had just finished, so at that point, it's just like any other show. If you've been to me, you know the one that when the uh, headliner is going to come on, it's all that mad dash rush, especially if you're on the floor. And they were pushing, and it was getting a little crazy, and the barricade was swaying back and forth. And I'm on the side; I could look down just a tad and see <laughs> the uh, rocking of back and forth. And the uh, I want to say one of the crew, road manager, whatever it was, came out. And this is Fort Bragg, mind you; it's full of soldiers, full of soldiers. They're out there; they want to, you know. They're they're pent up steam. They want to let it. They want to let it out. And uh, you know, obviously, the the Ozzy Osbourne show is gonna be that outlet. And this guy comes out, starts yelling and whatnot. Hey, get back! And uses some other profanities and whatnot. And then he calls them bolo heads. Oh man, when he called them bolo heads, forget it. That's when it got really crazy. So I'm looking at all this stuff, and this you know I'm like 19, 20 years old, whatever I was. And then it, it, you know, it got almost to the point of a riot. I think that's the only time I've been to a show that has gotten to that point. And then Ozzy came out. You know, the house lights were on. Ozzy comes out, and he's very cool. And uh, he, you know, he's, you know, asked the people to sit to to, uh, to uh, calm down and push back a little bit, which they did. And then he said, "Listen, I'm going to fire this fucking bloke for calling you bolo heads." And I was like, "Ah!" Then at that point, it was, you know, Ozzy becomes this even bigger you know and he's already larger than life you know in the eyes of his fan but he becomes even bigger you know it's like oh wow a rock and roll hero he came to save us you know and he, and he you know and he's gonna fire this asshole uh for calling us all this bullshit he said yeah you know it's great show i think it was a uh, bark of the moon tour if i remember correctly back in 1984 something like that still thank god nothing happened and uh if something would have happened then i would have survived it still would have made for a better story Picture yourself in a boat on a river With tangerine trees and marmalade skies The Beatles. Every once in a while. You know, every single week I could tell you that the Beatles uh, cover some portion of history uh, when it comes to all the rock news and rock history out there on the internet. Uh, but uh, this week in 2012, June the 27th, uh, 2012, I thought this was a super interesting uh, bit of Beatles history. And it, and it comes out of Russia. You know, Russia's been on the news here lately as of, you know what, last four or five years. Those people out there, they're a little wacky. But in uh, 2012, June the 27th, 2012, the chief medical officer of Russia said that the Beatles were to blame for their country's drug problem. <laughs> really? Yevgeny Brin, or Bruin, the nation's uh, medical chief back then in 2012, said that the country's youth first got introduced to the idea of drug taking when the band traveled to India to expand their minds. <laughs> so what the chief is saying, they must have had some kind of a camera or somebody reporting on the Beatles trip to India. Or I mean, the only way they could have found out back then when they were in India, because they were full-blown communists back then, is through the black market. I'm sure there wasn't, there wasn't a, uh, what is it, a closed-circuit TV on everything they were doing. This is absolute bullshit. Uh, Brian or Bruin added that uh, it was uh, after this news entered the public consciousness that people in Russia realized you can make money from the sale of drugs. So <laughs> at what point 
throughout the entire history of the Beatles did we ever see the Beatles uh, be drug pushers. Honestly, I've never seen that. Was it when they went to India that I haven't seen that footage? <laughs> it makes absolutely no sense. But anyway, when businesses then realized it was possible to make money from from this, from the sale of drugs, goods associated with pleasure and pleasures in quotations here, that was when the growth and the demand for drugs started in Russia. <laughs> let me let me tell you something. That I believe. I mean, I wasn't there, you know, obviously, in uh, whenever the Beatles were doing their thing back in India. I was definitely not in India, and I wasn't definitely not in Russia. But I will tell you this. First, ask yourself this question. What starts a demand for drugs? It's the need of the human being to get high, to escape their reality. It's that, uh, that chemical happiness that's provided uh, to them through the use of these chemicals like drugs and alcohol and the rest. Now, particularly in Russia, I could tell you that I think their need to take drugs and drink vodka and whatnot is to escape the reality of being oppressed by their fucking government. They're fucking commies there. You know? Shit. Get the fuck out of here with that bullshit. You know, whenever you need uh, uh, to blame something uh, that that you have no idea what's causing it. Just just go to rock and roll. You know what? The Beatles absolutely. It's documented. You know, innumerable times. The Beatles use drugs. Sure, absolutely. How, how many how many times has Paul McCartney alone been busted for drugs? A shitload of them. Got kicked out of Japan. But you know what? Here, let's go ahead and blame. Let's blame. Uh, let's blame America while we're at it. Because all these uh, freaking backass countries with all the stupid rules and oppression to their people, because it's their governments, by the way. They like blaming us. They like blaming the land of the free as well. You know what? Here people use drugs too. You know why they use drugs? Because they're stupid. There's no Beatles or anything else behind it. They're dumbasses. You don't see anybody saying, oh, it's the Beatles. Oh, it's Aerosmith. Oh, it's Metallica. No, it's because they're dumbasses who have to rely on uh, drugs, you know, that using that uh, that temporary high to escape their reality, whatever it may be. And I'm talking about all the freaking classes, you know, from the highest to the lowest. So, you know, again, that's our reason. You know what? Another thing here. Here's another thing while you're at it. Let's go ahead and blame the devil, too. Because we all know the devil is the other one that we blame for everything. Even that uh, that one, uh, what was that? That one televangelist uh, who was caught banging that that uh, that prostitute. Uh, it, a few of them have done that and stained uh, this incredible work that could be done out of the church and just makes it look really, really bad for everyone else, you know, with their with their cars and their planes and their bullshit. You know, get the hell out of here with that. I, I, I still remember this guy. Well, what, what is it that he said? Mm. I have sinned against you, my Lord. Yeah, right. His Lord was the devil, <laughs> for sure. The, de the devil with boobies probably went back to his mansion. No, the funny part is all these idiots that follow him. Hello, people, listen to me. The Bible says that you have free will. Use it. Use it to discern. Adam, you're not here to stop me on these rants. You know how much this shit pisses me off. The devil, the Beatles, and bazongas. And the bigger the cup, the bigger the sin. Shit. Oh, wait, wait a minute, I kind of lost track here. Was it you were talking about drugs or bazongas? You know, here's an idea. Take responsibility for yourself. And while we're, while we're blaming the devil, how about we play some of this? <laughs> it's Crazy Train and Ozzy. 
Osborne. There's a guy that's got a lot of weight. Mmm. Live from the Blizzard of Oz tour. Yes. 2019. This is recent. Ah, okay. About a year ago. Ozzy Osbourne and Sharon Osbourne ordered Donald Trump not to use uh, Ozzy's music. Specifically this song for his political campaign. I believe the crazy train was uh, all those buses and caravans that had all the, the Trumpers in there. And they were the crazy train. <laughs> I think there was one, uh, I, th- I remember seeing one something on YouTube where they had like joined up with uh, President Biden's campaign bus or something like that. And they were videotaping and they look, look, Biden's joined, joined the crazy train. <laughs> That was funny. <laughs> and the crazy train was actual, an actual appropriate name for those guys. I mean, look what they ended up doing at the Capitol. <laughs> that has, you have to be super crazy to do some bullshit like that. <laughs> well, anyway, to close this out, Sharon asked or suggested Mr. Trump could ask one of his prominent supporters, such as Kayani West, uh, Kid Rock, or even Ted Nugent, to supply them with uh, music for his campaign. Can you imagine getting an order from Ozzy Osbourne? <laughs> How serious can you take that? Come on. And from the crazy train, we're rolling with the night train with Guns N' Roses off of the epic appetite for destruction. Playing the drums there is Mr. Steven Adler. Wow, June the 29th, uh, 2019. A former GNR drummer, Steven Adler, was taken to the hospital after stabbing himself. Oh, that's, that's kind of messed up. You know, maybe I should have read ahead a little bit on this. But anyway, he uh, had been sacked from the rock group back in 1990 over uh, drinking and drug issues. And he was taken to a Los Angeles hospital after paramedics were called to his home for what was reported to be a self-inflicted injury. Mm. I forwent the, uh, what is it, the 1991 uh, July the 2nd story uh, from Guns N' Roses with that riot that they had in St. Louis, thinking thinking that maybe this one would have been a little bit better. I should have read a little bit, uh, a little bit ahead. But hey, it's still Guns N' Roses history, right? It's that time to kick back in the Tommy and Adam Hard to Name podcast time machine. Open your mind and listen to the significant album. Who knows? You may even be delightfully wounded by one of Mr. Adam Tate's deep cuts. Listen up. It's about to get real heavy. It's Kiss's Love Gun on Significant Album, baby. And this one right here is a deep cut. Off of Mr. Adam Tate's deep cut. I stole your love. Mm. 
down. I know I'm going to screw this one up. This is one of my favorite albums. All of these are my songs. Every single one. Woo, this week when the Kiss Army uh, email came out, or was it a text? I can't remember. It doesn't matter. I saw this and I said, oh, that's right. Love Gun. And I was going to forego uh, this week in history for Love Gun, but the comic thing was just too much. I couldn't do that. But yeah, Love Gun released June the 30th, 1977 on Casablanca Records. Here, let's listen to some of this more. Mm, I stole your love. Yes. Woo. Love Gun was a sixth studio album by American hard rock uh, band Kiss. American, you know, hello? Fourth of July, American, yes. It shipped platinum on the date that it left the factory. It was certified platinum and became the band's first top five album on the Billboard charts. Uh, remastered both in uh, 1997 and 2014. It was their first album to feature a lead vocal performance from Ace Frehley. And you know that one is Shock Me. Here, let me punch that one up real quick. Ooh, yes. Shock Me. Ace had had a, uh, a misadventure with a loose electrical wire. And the, the inspiration for the song uh, was that experience he had. Had nothing to do with him getting electrocuted, though, because like everything else that's Kiss, it's, uh, it's about banging chicks. <laughs> Come on and shock me. Just replace shock with uh, whatever creative word about banging you want to go ahead and uh, use on this one. Uh, but yes, it was another awesome song. And, and it goes to show you that, that Ace, uh, well, let me give me a second here. Give me one second here. In uh, his book, uh, No Regrets, uh, awesome uh, book, by the way. If you get a chance, take a, take a, take a, a good read, and uh, you learn quite a bit. One of the things he talked about was, or he mentioned in the book was, that uh, he was a little, uh, not afraid, I wanna, don't want to use that word, but he was a little bit uh, non-receptive to, to him singing uh, a lead. But he did a great job on this song on Shock Me. And then if anything else after that, you know, once he leaves the band and whatnot, and he comes up with, a, with a, uh, Ace's Comet and the whole deal with uh, Rock Soldiers and all these other great songs and these covers like, a, like a New York Groove, it, you, you'll know that Ace really had the chops to go ahead and sing. Next song on this great album is uh, Tomorrow and Tonight. Whew. There's the rock and roll howl, you know, Mr. Paul Stanley on vocals on that one. Uh, this was also the last album to feature Peter Chris on all the songs uh, since he had been replaced uh, for, by session drummer Anton Figg for the follow-up album to this one, which was Dynasty. Uh, something really cool about this record is uh, that it had a cardboard love gun, so it was kind of this... Uh, uh, this momento of the album, no, it, it really wasn't the insinuation of what a love gun was, no. So don't get excited. It was an actual kind of like a toy cardboard gun, and it did require some assembly. And uh, it was also, uh, uh, wait a minute, if it's, it's a good segue to go right into the song, of course. Uh, <laughs> uh, it also came with a uh, Kiss merchandise order form. 
and before Love Gun was completed, a Gallup poll uh, indicated that Kiss was the most popular band in the United States of America, beating out Aerosmith, Led Zeppelin, and the Eagles. <laughs> Woo! Uh, I'm gonna try to go through this as fast as I can. Uh, all I can tell you is that uh, uh, I think what I have remaining here, because honestly, I could go uh, on and on uh, about this record. Uh, on August 26, 27, 28 of 1977, uh, Chris Kiss also uh, recorded three shows at the LA, LA Forum for their next release, their second live album, Alive 2. That's almost human. Oh, man. Hold up. Has that funk? You got it. You got it. You got it right there. Yeah. Ooh. Oh. Oh. I would imagine it's coming out that I'm a shameless Kiss fan, and and I'm a big fan of this record for sure. Uh, the next one coming up is an actual cover, a rare cover by Kiss. It was this song was originally titled. And then he kissed me. It was done by the Crystals back in 1963. And Kiss redid it and even renamed it. Their version is called And Then She Kissed Me. Has that, that 60s vibe. It was brought up to date a tad for the 70s. And it shows that, you know, this is their influence back when they were teens and whatnot. So, yeah, you could get that, uh, that feel. So let me see how we're going to close this record out. Oh, that's right. Let me uh, let's let's go ahead and close it out with this right here, cause uh, I finally calmed down just a tad with, and then she kissed me. But uh, plaster caster is this next one coming up, uh, and this song we've covered before on the podcast. The uh, uh, inspiration behind it was Cynthia Plaster Caster, uh, a former famous groupie, a uh, famous rock musicians, and. Uh, this is uh, Kiss's homage to the services that she provided to rock stars, which was uh, to make uh, uh, statues of their of their peens. So this is uh, you know typical Kiss fashion. Great song, Plaster Caster. Check it out. I think it's about time that uh, I wrap up significant album and. Uh, if you get a chance, pick up this record. You know, download it, buy it. I have it on vinyl. I have it around here somewhere, probably on a CD. But still, you know, finally, calm down. <laughs> I'm going to hate listening to myself on the playback. But anyway, it doesn't make a difference because this, ladies and gentlemen, was this week's significant album. Significant album. Born on this day, rock and roll birthdays. This uh, beautiful performer right here, Miss Deborah Harry, uh, turned 76. Wow. On July the 1st, uh, she was born 1945. 
She is an American singer, songwriter, and actress with Blondie. This particular song here, I think, was off of, uh, I want to say, American Gigolo. Pretty, <laughs> pretty obvious, I think. Call me. And uh, Blondie scored a bunch of number one singles. Uh, we've also said things that they were the first to showcase rapping. Things of, uh, you know, they were new wavy punk. They really, you couldn't really get a, a feel for Blondie. I enjoyed it a lot. Disco, too. They had that uh, Heart of Glass song, which, you know, again, has that sireny mood swing tonality in her voice. Blondie, man. She's a Playboy uh, model as well. Made of. Back then, she probably would have, if we would have had this podcast, she would have made the third birthday, maybe. Mm, let me think. Uh, no, no. Maybe, 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 maybe. Because usually the requirement for third birthday is that they have to have a lot of equipment. That's, the, that's usually how that works. <laughs> also born on this day is Stephen Piercy, born July the 3rd, 1957. And this is Rat's Lack of Communication. God knows uh, we're uh, suffering from a lot of that nowadays. Or maybe over-communication, however you want to do it. But yeah, uh, Stephen Pierce, he saw him a couple of years ago at the, uh, uh, I want to say, the Kansas Star Casino. The whole, the whole crew, you know, the, to be honest with you, he was looking pretty rough. The bassist and him were the only original members left of Rat. And uh, as a matter of fact, they were in the news, the rock news not too long ago. I guess they want to reunite uh, for one more record. So let's see how that works out. I, I, I saw Rat, I think, the first time back in uh, Elidran Bithorn in San Juan PR. Back uh, mid-80s. It was pretty good. Uh, also born on this day is uh, Yingui Maustein. Uh, I hope I, I, I always screw that guy's name up. Anyway, June the 30th of uh, 1963 is 58. Also, uh, Kate Bush. <laughs> She's 63. And the only reason I, I want to mention Kate Bush is because she has an awesome last name, Bush. <laughs> Let me work it. I put my thing down, flip it and reverse it. It's your... And that, ladies and gentlemen, was our last birthday of the day. It's Missy Elliott. She turns 50 today. I wonder what she means when she says... uh. Let me work it. Let me flip down, rub it, and reverse it. <laughs> this reminds me of something I'm not even gonna even gonna mention on this podcast. It's the Tommy and Adam Hard to Name podcast. Birthday number three. How appropriate. <laughs> we were talking about uh, flipping down, rubbing, and reversing. We roll right into this episode's third birthday. Mm, let me let's just go right into it. <laughs> oh. oh, wow. Yes. Go ahead and open your uh, Lords of the G-String app, and uh, you may want to check this one out. It is R-I-T-I-N-H-A-M-A-N-H-O-S-A-Riting-Hamanosa. Wow. 
No, <laughs> yeah. Known as agents. This is Deep. definitely and an then. agent <laughs> contribution. Wow. It's almost all uh, it is almost all uh, in a swimwear. Riting Hamanosa has only 33,000 followers, which is pretty good. You know, this is a, a starter. As 409 posts, oh, we can't go through all 409, so that's why uh, you'll have to use the Lord of the G-String app to get this one uh, rolling. Help you sort through it. They'll look at the uh, the settings on the app, and you could able you're able to uh, <laughs> you're able to either set it for uh, swimwear. When this case is probably just won't help you that much because it's all swimwear. Like I said before, you could do nightlife, you could do casual, you could do evening wear, <laughs> you could do uh, size. <laughs> no. Not really, not really, not really. But let's uh, let's just go to uh, the one that Agent X three, I guess, was his app was. Uh, oh, it's number forty. Okay, absolutely. There's no caption on this, but uh, uh, the uh, young lady on. I think this one is actually like a contribution page. It's like a, it's like a you know a bunch of uh, models all together on the Instagram. And they all got together and made this page, which you know I'm sure it's gonna blow up very soon here. So, but number forty, uh, I'll uh, pick number forty on this uh, uh, page. It is uh, she's uh, featured in the favorite uh, position in the favorite shot, uh, as they almost all are on the Lord of the G String app in the uh, looking towards uh, their shoulder and uh, oh whoop whoop yes, I knew this would come up alert yes. There's no way around it. <laughs> she's looking back. She has a hat on because she's on the beach. And, you know, remember, you have to protect yourself from the sun if you don't put on a lot of uh, of uh, suntan lotion. And she doesn't look that tanned on that picture. So so we we thank you for that uh, that pose and that picture that you have shared with the entire world. Staying more or less within that zone, I would say, uh, yeah, let's keep going down on number number 58. Yeah, number 58. Uh, it has, let's take a quick look at it. It has, uh, it only has uh, 319 little hearts. Hmm, I wonder why. But why wouldn't it have more? She's in lingerie. She's posing like in the living room, you know. It's she's there's a it's it's a white room it is so it, it, it actually kind of uh matches with the lingerie because she has white lingerie the kind of lingerie that they would wear uh, on honeymoons and, and events of those uh kind of outings <laughs> let's go back to the top let's go to the top here real quick ah let's go to okay let's go to number it would be number seven. Wait a minute. Uh, yes, six, seven. No, be number eight, actually. It's a video. Oh, <laughs> oh, I can see what she's doing here. She is sitting on the floor, and she is shaking her shoulders back and forth. Yes. 
since this is a, you know, Latino kind of uh, experience, because I think this is a Brazilian page, I think she's, a, uh, that would be called Shaking Her Maracas. <laughs> he likes. Of course you'd like Guy. I like it too. Okay, here's another one. Uh, another video, actually. It's like in the 30, I want to say it's 36, 37. She's kind of in a, uh, I don't know, brown kind of, uh, I want to say casual around the house. She's she, <laughs> she's bending over there. I think she's uh, giving the cat, the, the kitty cat. Some food. Yeah, no. <laughs> no. Uh, thank God uh, if she would have been in a thong, <laughs> that cat would have been released. Uh, I think I think we're gonna leave the third birthday for today. <laughs> I don't wanna look at any more of these uh uh, pictures because then I'll, I'll take away all the surprises or all the amazement that uh, our listeners of uh, the legions who enjoy this segment, especially uh, especially uh, the general. I think this is one of his favorite ones, as is mine, as is Adams as well. Well, we'll see. We'll have to <laughs> catch up with uh, Godzilla to see what he's doing. Hopefully, he'll come up with some uh, new material. He's been busy filming these epic epic um, uh, video memes but uh, you know Agent X3 great job always finding you know Bye. that's right <laughs> Woo. they've gotten really good past couple of weeks Agent X3 has not uh, let us down not in a single sense Woo. <laughs> What the frijoles? I believe this is also another uh, theme that Agent X3 likes uh, to explore. It is titled Probing Extraterrestrial Abduction. Wow. In the United States, the first story of abduction by extraterrestrials that received national attention was that of Betty and Barney Hill. Are these real names? <laughs> A couple from New Hampshire who claimed to have been kidnapped in a UFO in 1961. There is, however, another earlier story of abduction. Uh, this one dates to 1957, and it centers around Antonio Villas Boas, a farmer from uh, rural Brazil. <laughs> Probing and Brazil. I think I should uh, go ahead and uh, Google that or something. <laughs> Probing brazil and instagram models probably uh whatever comes up not be appropriate enough to share on this podcast anyway according to vijas boas he was plowing fields with his tractor when he was taken against his will by a group of ets measuring about five feet tall <laughs> he was plowing i don't know if he's getting plowed as he's being probed but <laughs> I guess we'll find out here. On their spaceship, he was put in a room. Yep, here it comes. Where he saw some kind of gas come out of the walls, making him sick. Then a very... <laughs> no way. Then a very attractive female, naked, with long platinum blonde hair, 
pre uh no fire red oh my god pubic hair and uh deep blue cat eyes came to him and forced him to have intercourse oh Oh, please don't. <laughs> I think this was a reverse probing, actually. And if this is actually factual, <laughs> we at least we know that aliens also use hair dye. <laughs> so here's the guy. He's all gassed up. You know, I don't know. He's probably hallucinating or something. And then uh, this this uh, this this uh, really is sexy music comes on. <laughs> and it's an alien. With this description, this is, hello, darling, let's get it on. <laughs> oh, come on. I, actually, is this NPR? Let me see. Let me check for real. Uh, source, boom, boom, copy, paste. All right. <laughs> yeah, it, it is NPR. <laughs> Uh, again, according to uh, Vijas Boas, her intentions were quite clear to produce a human-alien hybrid that uh, would she would raise on her planet. After he got back, uh, Vijas Boas had noted that his mailbox was full <laughs> from that planet's child support services. <laughs> uh, he, he had the owed all that money <laughs> back child support. No, I just made that shit up. <laughs> but that would have been funny. Regis Boyle noted he had burns on his body. A doctor uh, from a reputable medical center diagnosed him as uh, radiation burns. Oh, wow. That must have been some encounter with the with the alien uh, uh, platinum blonde. Anyway, his doctor, Olavo Fontes, had contacts with the American UFO research group, uh, APRO, uh, APRO. Vijas Boas had uh, no recollection as to how he got those burns. The story gained worldwide popularity in the 1950s, especially when, when all the UFO craze was going on during that time. Shoot. Uh, many were led to believe its veracity, and that's his story, for politically incorrect reasons, claiming that a humble farmer from rural Brazil was not able to concoct such a tale. In reality, though, Vijas Boas was not really humble nor uneducated. His family owned large tracts of land and at least one tractor. He later became a lawyer and practiced until his death in 1992. I guess uh, he, he fought the alien planet in court for all those, uh, for all those bills and back uh, child support payments. Let me, let me keep on here. I'm going to get them screwed up. Uh, the sensationalist video about the case by Paranormal TV tells its own version of the story. Um, you know what I'm thinking here real quick? What, this is the kind of story that should be on the History Channel. You know, they like doing all that kind of UFO bullshit stories, and I think that's pretty entertaining. Anyway, moving on with this uh, story, says the overwhelming majority of scientists categorically deny that narratives of abductions are real in any way. Well, of course. They're going to deny it's bullshit. Can you imagine scientists actually certifying that stuff? It'd be people looking up into the sky all the time, worried about if they're going to get abducted and probed. It'll be chaos. You know what? I should have invited Aaron, the mighty Aaron Epp on this one. He had some uh, good points on extra, extraterrestrial stuff on the podcast he was a guest on about a year ago. Anyway, 
uh, uh, going back to abduction. Most cases are, if not plain hoaxes, the product of various kinds of abnormal psychological states. They're, they're probably using, uh, they're probably listening to the Beatles <laughs> and then use drugs, according to uh, that Russian asshole in that one story I did earlier. Uh, American researcher and a skeptic Peter Rogerson uh, questioned, was one of the ones that questioned the veracity of Vijas Bo's nar- narrative, arguing that, it, that an article about alien abduction had appeared in a widely popular magazine called O Cruzeiro. I, I would imagine that's also Brazilian. Uh, plow, probe, and then O. <laughs> in November 1957, he noted that Vijas Boa's story only started to gain popularity in 1958 and that Vijas Boa could have uh, predated his encounter to give it more credibility. Also, Rogerson argued that Vijas Boa was influenced uh, as many other abductees are, by the popular sensationalist narratives of ufologist Georges Ad- Adamski. Uh, most abduction stories have elements uh, in common of what Vijas Boas uh, related to. Kidnapping in an alien spaceship. Okay, that's one, of course. Uh, medical exams that center around the human reproductive system. <laughs> Or explicit sexual contact with extraterrestrials. I mean, maybe, you know, <laughs> maybe the UFO, uh, maybe the aliens are naughty. Uh, you, you don't know. And mysterious marks left on the body. So I guess those are the categories to actually fit into this kind of story. Uh, Carl Sagan, in his wonderful book, Demon Haunted World, brings these elements together arguing for a connection between what abductees say now and what narratives of mysterious sexual night encounters have been saying for ages. Hmm. There are mythologies dating back thousands of years, for example, from Sumerian folklore in um, 2400 BC, where a demon in either male or female form seduces people in their sleep. Saints Agustine and Thomas Aquinas wrote of an incubus, or a succubus, uh, demons that come during sleep and have sexual relations with unwilling hum- humans. So we went from UFO and aliens to uh, the incubus. <laughs> Similar story appear in cultures across the world. Well, well, let's stop for a minute. Let's stop. I'm going to stop, you know, thinking about stupid shit. Can it really be? That much of a coincidence that back then there was still, I mean, they weren't able to, dis- I mean, this is what the ancient alien theorists say. They, they're unable to describe uh, technology as we would be able to describe it today. They would have to relate it to what they know at the time. So they don't know what an alien is. They could call it an incubus. I mean, I don't know what 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 St. Agustin and Thomas Aquinas were. They could have been also uh, uh, listening to Beatles back there or something like the Beatles and used drugs. I don't know. Meanwhile, the nearest star to Earth is about Fort Light years away. For the fastest spaceship, it would take 100,000 years to get there. If intelligent aliens exist and came here, they would have technologies beyond anything we can dream of, capable of fast interstellar travel, able to come and go without a trace. Also, I think that's where that black hole theory comes. Can you imagine you're in your planet and you're going to say, you know what, let's just go to Earth. Let's, they're good looking down there. Let's abduct them. Let's probe them. Let's have sex with them. 
And I mean, just to travel all that distance to do that, that, that seems like a lot of work. It, you know, it'd be like when, you know, Ben Franklin was leaving, you know, North America to go and to go to France and, and Paris and, and bang, uh, bang uh, strippers and, uh, and prostitutes. It would take a good old Ben Franklin two and a half months to get out to uh, France from the U.S., going to all that trouble to get some love and you know think about it the aliens would be doing the same thing they'd have to come you know all that distance from wherever they're coming i mean is it really that good meanwhile one also has to wonder about the alleged repetition of exams uh focusing on our sexual organs <laughs> you know it makes you wonder given also their uh their tech advances, you would imagine, you know, especially if they're traveling that far, it, by now they would get what they would need. I mean, we haven't evolved that much here in the what, 1950s, 1960s, uh, that whole, what, 50, 60 years to <laughs> what kind of sexual machine we've become. I have no idea. <laughs> uh, J. William uh, Shapps, a pa paleontologist in the University of California, once said that extraordinary claims demand extraordinary evidence. You know what, dude, you're right, but this is alien, so you don't need evidence for that. You just need to make speculations, and you're pretty much good to go. In the case of alien abductions, it seems that very ordinary explanations are to be believed in absence of extraordinary evidence. This is not to say that scientists would love uh, to have evidence of extraterrestrial life. I don't know. There's Area 54 out there in New Mexico. Roswell, that's uh, alive and, and kicking out there. That's, a, that's a part of their economy, actually. Uh, especially anything with intelligent life. You would think if they're traveling that far away, they'd be intelligent. But a uh, fundamental percept of, uh, of science is to base claims on evidence backed by verifi verifiable data. Mm, lower this. Oh, my volume thing went up again. My recording volume. So, let me close this out with, otherwise, why give scientific claims any credibility? You know what? And that's today's hashtag, what the frijoles. <laughs> Brazil. I'm starting to love Brazil. I don't know what the frijoles were uh, out of Asia. I don't know what I'm going to do, but let's just keep moving on. It's the Tommy and Adam Hard to Name Podcast. Sound of the Week. Sound of the Week? Hmm. What am I going to do for Sound of the Week? <laughs> Here, let me look at my notes again and... Okay, our recording team was out again. Well, the Tommy and Adam Hard to Name podcast uh, special re special event recording team. There was a lot of, of events going on this week. Uh, Bill Cosby was released from jail. Uh, I think the Bucks and the uh, and the Suns are going to be going to the NBA Finals. But we also had our former president uh, go down to Texas to the border, and I believe our uh, special recording team was down there. I have a side note here says that there was some kind of a briefing, but before they went into that briefing, they all went to this food truck that was selling tacos out there. So it was like, you know, those little corner taco, taco stand, taco food trucks, and they all had a uh, meal together. They had a, 
they broke bread before they went into this briefing. So I wonder what this is all about. So let's just go ahead and see what this briefing is saying here. Okay. Yeah, President Trump's back in the great state of Texas. Oh, okay. <laughs> They're kissing his ass. He's a great friend in Texas. He's a great friend of mine. When I was okay. uh, governor, he was president. Anytime I called oh, him, wow. president, he oh. to step up and help our fellow Texans. <laughs> and one of the things that he did better than anything else, and definitely better than any other president, is that he secured power for Texas and American safety. <laughs> It's one of the. It's what's going on. Let's see if there's anything newsworthy here That's going on. Current administration oh, okay. needs to understand that uh, to, so to the partnership we have with Border Patrol. Some guy in a cowboy hat is speaking the, uh, now. Okay. Administration needs to understand that uh, <laughs> the police were to the American public and in saying that. Where's the part that where's the part that 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 uh that that our, that our president is uh, speaking? Our former president is speaking. Let's just fast forward this here and see what he has to say. Okay, there he is. His arms are crossed. He's ready to say something. Well, Governor, thank you very much. It was an honor to endorse you and strongly endorse you. I did notice your. Every time he moves. <laughs> Look at all these guys that are nodding their heads. Oh, look who just peeked in. <laughs> it's the taco truck guy. I think that's enough of that. <laughs> The taco truck guy was laughing. I wonder why. It's Montezuma's revenge at the border. I don't know. Oh, it's the Tommy and Adam hard to name podcast. Sound of the week. Oh, I hate hearing Adam's voice. I want you to come back, Adam. I hope uh, to be doing uh, some really good justice. Uh, to your special segment there. <laughs> keep that going and keep it alive. It's the Tommy and Adam Hard to Name Podcast. Mora Focaria of the Week. Mm. It's the Motherfucker of the Week. Let me see what I can hear real quick. Uh, we're coming to the end. I uh, I hear some uh, noise outside. Probably a Wilda's already up. Uh I think she has the radio on or something outside. It's coming through a little bit vaguely through the... Uh, uh, no, you know what? I'm going to forego the motherfuckeria this week. Let me see what else I have here in my notes. Uh, the No, I was not, I'm not going to read that email. I didn't have a lot of time to search through all of them. So how about we just go ahead and uh, start closing this sucker out. How's that? With some good times and some bad times. Good times, bad times. Let's go to the let's go to the bad times first. How's that? Livewire magazine reported this week uh, that Mr. Alex Lifeson said 
there's no way Rush will ever exist again. You know, that's some sad news. I would say that I agree with him totally because Rush was the uh, the whole of those three parts of uh, Alex and Geedy Lee and obviously the uh, late, great uh, Neil Peart. So nearly six years removed from their final show, Rush guitarist Alex Lifeson has stated that there's no way Rush will ever exist again, citing the 2020 death of drummer Neil Peart as the reason why Lifeson did offer, okay, here we go, some hope that he and Giddy Lee could reunite musically someday. And I think he said that in, uh, oh yeah, an Eddie Trunk show on uh, Sirius XM. So this was published uh, one day ago, yesterday, the July the 2nd. So yeah, that's some bad times, but... You know, that was expected. We already kind of knew that, and, and, and I have to agree with him. Uh, there is no way, absolutely no way, that uh, Rush will ever exist as a component. There's no way you can replace, you know, drummer extraordinaire, uh, Mr. Uh, Neil Peart, rest in peace. Uh, good times is Iron Maiden's new album called Writing on the Wall. Oh, that's right. Good times. Iron Maiden is well working on uh, its 17th album, Evidence is mounting that Iron Maiden are about to release details of their 17th album, which appears to be associated with the title Writing on the Wall or uh, Belshazzar's Feast. So I could see where it already has uh, some biblical connotations. No surprise there, especially coming from Iron Maiden. Musically, let's hope that it does sound classic Iron Maiden so we could go ahead and, and enjoy that new record even more. I think I'm going to call it. Good times, bad times. I've been yammering to close to uh, an hour and a half, maybe a little bit over. Let me take a quick check here. Yep, that's too long for me to be here solo again. Adam, I hope you listened uh, to this uh, podcast wherever you may be as well as all of our legion of listeners. Before I uh, let this one go, I want to wish you a happy 4th of July. Overall, that you also have a safe holiday along with uh, your loved ones. Blowing up shit. And the rest of the things that we do as we celebrate our nation and its freedoms, the freedoms that allow us to do the wonderful things that we're able to do here in the great U.S. of A., as always, we want to thank our legion of listeners, our fans, and whoever else subjects themselves to this podcast. We really appreciate it. Keep in mind, life is not that serious. Again, search with the keywords, the Tommy and Adam hard to name podcast. Listen to us on Spotify, Apple Podcast app, RSS Podcast, CastBox, and everywhere else this podcast is on demand and streaming. Activate the notification icon to be notified when we're online and tell a friend or an enemy. In for my rock and roll bro and the humblest guy that I know on the planet, Mr. Adam Tate. I am Tommy Martinez. Today is July the 3rd, 2021, and you were listening to the Tommy and Adam Hard to Name podcast. Remember to always play it often, play it loud, but play it.
The Tommy and Adam Hard to Name podcast is produced by Dadakoa Promotions. Yeah, which are the Kansas. Dadakoa Promotion. Against you, my lord.